Hello everyone, this is James Lindsay, you're listening to the New Discourses podcast, and we're going to talk about something sick today. This is a podcast I really should have done a long time ago. I'm going to kind of base this off of a thread I did on Twitter, apparently on the 9th of July, 2020. Um, It's something that I've actually been thinking about for almost as long as I've been aware of what's going on in what we might call the critical social justice or woke literature academic literature, but I didn't really realize the full depth of it, even in July of 2020. Uh, and it's, it's really about the, what's going on in our schools, but also more broadly in social media and more broadly in mass media regarding the, the, the kind of the tip of the iceberg of this is actually, um, the sexualization of children through critical theories of identity. Although, like I said, it's just a tip of the iceberg because there's also, you know, the racialization of children through things like critical race theory uh, and the other kind of um, critical theories of society being crammed into children, whether it's post-colonial, whether it's, you know, gender, sex, sexuality, whether it's race, whether it's uh, even ability status, fat status, or whatever else, or even a more broad, just blanket critical theory of society that dips into, you know, capitalism and so on. And what I wanted to say, and I'll actually just read a little bit of these tweets I put out, this thread I put out, which now has over 4,000 likes. It got a lot of attention at the time. Um, I put this out, like I said, in July, 2020. And I said, this seems like it's coming out of nowhere, but it's based in a conversation I had with someone earlier. And it turned out to be in private explaining an important aspect of woke culture that many of us perceive, but few understand. One of the targets that woke culture wants to dismantle is the innocence of children. And it's very important to understand the way that these critical theories think about the innocence of children. They see the innocence of children as a fundamental problem that has to be overcome in order to achieve their liberation, to achieve sexual liberation of children, to achieve gender liberation, to achieve racial liberation. And so... All of this stuff that's kind of being mainlined, the gender-bred person, etc., you might have seen in schools, the rampant use of pronouns, all of this stuff that comes out of gender theory, but more importantly, queer theory, which is Marxist queer theory, by the way, or neo-Marxist, I suppose, if we have to be technical, um, all the kind of stuff that we see with the racialization of children in, in schools, all of this stuff exists to obliterate the innocence of children, which the woke actually see as a hegemonic narrative that maintains the existing order and relations of society that must be dismantled if we are to achieve revolution. And so who better to destabilize than children? We could get into a lot and we will get into a lot, but the easiest since, since the kind of queer stuff, and now we have to deal with this, um, MAP, which is a rebranding of pedophilia. It means minor attracted person, as they put it, but it really just means men acting as pedophiles. Um, and I guess it doesn't have to be men. It could be women, but it, 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 the P should stand for pedophile. And so sometimes you'll see it as MAI, minor attracted individual. But you're seeing now a push for this in conjunction with all of these kind of very sexual books that are supposed to, you know, gender queer or whatever. They're supposed to be revealing and, and reaching into um, the schools in school libraries, sometimes in, I think in curriculum. I don't know for sure if it's in curriculum anywhere, but they're certainly being found in libraries everywhere where these very explicit 
uh, sexually explicit graphic novels depicting oral sex, talking about and teaching about anal sex and rimming to often young kids. Sometimes I've heard as young as, you know, third and fourth grade. Um, and the point is to obliterate childhood innocence. But within queer theory, it goes even further uh, because queer theory is grooming ideology, uh, Marxist grooming ideology. Uh, that's what it has to be understood as uh, because the definition of queer within queer theory is an identity without an essence. And so the purpose there isn't just to break down um, childhood innocence, which is a hegemonic narrative to them that maintains existing social relations that must therefore be disrupted and dismantled. It is uh, also to um, literally to, to destabilize individuals uh, as children and to, to make them susceptible to politically actionable uh, points of view. Because they, if they can't understand themselves, or as I've put it in many talks now, if they can't get based by knowing who they are and being difficult to move off of that knowledge of who they are, then they're very easily politically manipulable. They will be depressed. They will be anxious. They will be groomable, as a matter of fact, because they have they have to be leaning into these identities without an essence. They have to identify with not knowing who they are. And this destabilization is quite intentional and it has actually, and this is kind of the point of this podcast, I don't want to go into the details of a of a book that depicts oral sex being done on a uh, person wearing a strap-on dildo being in in children's schools. Um, and it, if you're shocked at hearing this, by the way, remember your shock, if you're, sh if you're shocked at hearing this, your shock should be directed, not at me for saying it, but at the fact that this is in books that are in libraries, public school libraries that have been brought in there. And you must understand this. This stuff did not make it in there accidentally. It is possible the administrators and the librarians and the whoever in the school let it in without sufficient vetting, which is negligence not an accident, but it wasn't brought there by accident. The people who pushed this stuff into the books, into the schools did so on purpose. They did so under this guise, this lie that, well, there are these sexual minorities, gender minorities who don't understand themselves. So we must provide them with material so they can understand themselves. And they say a oh, kind of a victim pity story. Look back 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago, look how sexual deviants were treated, mistreated. Look how bad it was for gay children in socially conservative households with their parents disowning them and whatever. And there's your kernel of truth that they can manipulate into saying, well, we have to provide this in government schools to children so that they, and this is the argument they're literally giving for doing this. We have to provide this in government schools so that these children have some point of contact to understand themselves as they actually are. But when you remember that queer theory means an identity without an essence, where everything identity-based, especially in sex, gender, and sexuality, is considered spectrum and fluid, then unchangeable, malleable, constantly malleable. In fact, as pretend and malleable and changeable as the uh, profile picture and avatar you use on social media or in future in the metaverse, when you can be, if you want to be a furry for real, you can be a furry for real. If you don't know what a furry is, enjoy your uh, trip to the search engine. Um, this is actually happening in our schools. And, and I want to give the, per the perspective that this is a long running project. And it's a long running project rooted in Marxist theory that's being used specifically to destabilize the relationship between parents and children, childhood and adulthood, very intentionally so that you can make both 
sexually, unfortunately, but also politically groomable. They don't much care. Some of them do. It's kind of like this deal with the devil between the Marxists and the pedophiles. It's very Wormtongue and Eowyn, if you know the metaphor from Tolkien. Wormtongue is this creepy perv who's whispering nasty magic spells into the king's ear, King Theoden, and keeping him weak and whatever, so that Saruman, who he works for, the evil wizard, can do whatever he wants and kind of try to usurp the power uh, that's meant for Sauron or whatever. This is the myth. This is a story. And so the promise Wormtongue is given very creepily is that he gets to have his pick of the women. And he wants uh, Theoden's niece, sister daughter, uh, Eowyn, uh, for his own. And it's like this creepy deal. So you've got the pedophiles are like Wormtongue. And the Marxists are like Saruman. And Saruman's like, hey, pedos, do, your, do our bidding. Destabilize the schools. Destabilize the kids. And you can have your pick of them. And so you have this kind of like deal with the devil there between these two, but the Marxists know what they're doing. They're, they're destabilizing children and they can be sexually groomable and the pedophiles get to benefit from that. So they're happy to do it and they're going to be destigmatized, so to speak. So they're happy to do it. And on the other hand, they really have not much to lose. And on the other hand, um, the Marxists get to destabilize identity. They get to destabilize uh, psychology, and therefore they get politically groomable people that they can bring into a disaffected, dissatisfied, mentally ill state that they can then manipulate into being revolutionaries for their cause, which you must understand is the point of Marxism. And you must also understand that these are your children. They're doing it too, so they can get what they want, which is total control over the society because they believe in a magic liberation on the other side of doing this. So your children become a tool for them to achieve their disgusting and catastrophic political aims, which will be a catastrophe, both in, in the doing, in the means, and in the ends. Your children become the tool, and in the meantime, your children actually get massively psychologically and even sexually abused so that they can achieve that. Your children, through our schools, which in a society like the United States and all free societies are actually, they should be accountable to us, to parents, to good everyday citizens who have a vested interest in having a healthy, educated populace. Um... And it to be done broadly by institutions that we should be able to trust because they work for us. They are paid by our tax dollars. And when you realize that our schools have been captured in a way that allows a Marxist agenda that achieves itself by literally psychological and sexual abuse and grooming of your children to do it, you really have to start realizing, and this isn't the point of this podcast, how much we need a broad-based parents coalition that no longer cares, Republican or Democrat, right, left, center, doesn't matter, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter, male, female, mom, dad, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, vaccinated, unvaccinated, doesn't matter. All of this division of parents prevents them from being able to protect their kids from creating this destabilized um, population in the children who are mentally ill and who are, in fact, going to rebel against, mock, and hate their parents' sexual morality in particular and grandparents' sexual morality, reject it, refuse it, and in fact, as happened in China, eventually possibly rise up in violence against the older generations whom they now see as repressing them and unable to understand them. All that kind of discontent 
of adolescence being channeled into a kind of flaming fury of societal destruction. Now, this is, again, a deliberate plan. This is not the attempt to help the proportion of students who are suffering gender dysphoria, uh, who are actually gay and trying to come to terms with understanding who they are. It's not about helping any of that. It's all props for this Marxist political agenda that the groomers, sexual groomers, get to capitalize upon. That's what's going on in our schools under the brand name of comprehensive sex education tucked within the program of social emotional learning, which has been co-opted entirely by these um, political groomers and literal sexual groomers uh, that are that have taken control of our education system. And whether we look at and we will, we'll talk a little bit about George Lukács, a Hungarian Marxist. We'll talk a little bit about Herbert Marcuse, the critical Marxist or neo-Marxist of the 60s, 50s and 60s, who was so influential. We can even talk a little bit about Paula Ferreri. But the goal is ultimately to destabilize children in order to, um, we can even talk about Antonio Gramsci, in fact, to to be able to achieve their aims. Just to mention the relevance of Gramsci, for example, Gramsci recognized that what repels communism in the West is its culture. He called it cultural hegemony. He said that it was the force, in a sense, like the force field that keeps um, the culture stable and prevents people from wanting to be revolutionaries or taking up with a revolution or organizing properly. Um, this is what the neo-Marxists, of course, later complained about. They, the critical theorists, they said that Marx was wrong. Capitalism was stabilizing the working class. It was stabilizing society. It was providing people with a good life. And so you have to go at it from a different means. Antonio Gramsci said you have to enter into the cultural institutions and destabilize them from within, establish an internal counter hegemony, and then let that blot, that, that rot blossom and fester and work its way outward until a culture is destabilized. The cultural hegemony is in question and then the revolution can proceed. Welcome, by the way, to the 2020s. That's where we are 100 years later after Gramsci's writing this. Um, and Gramsci identified five key pillars of culture. I've covered this before, uh, religion, family, education, media, and law. So if you're going to destabilize the family, the nuclear family, we heard that from Black Lives Matter, for example, we must destabilize, disrupt, and dismantle the idea of the nuclear family. We hear this everywhere. One of the most powerful ways these exact same theorists 100 years ago realized was to destabilize children by sexualizing them. But we can also add in racializing them. And so I'll just go back to my, my Twitter thread, and then we're going to start to add some more depth and context. Now that we've got Gramsci's view of this, um, and remember just tangentially um, that uh, Gramsci was translated into English in 1970 and 71 by Joseph Buttigieg, who's beat Buttigieg's father um, at Notre Dame. Sorry, Notre Dame, the, the university. I did that in, by accident. Uh, so there's a connection there to the Democratic Party. Like, this whole idea that they're, they're, there's a deep thread of grooming going on and what's going on with their politics connects pretty closely here. Um, not to say anything about Pete or Joseph Buttigieg specifically, because I don't know those things. Um, and I claim no such thing, but just that there's a deep thread connected deeply into the Democratic Party uh, and its operatives today into this line of philosophy as well. And it must be understood. Uh, so Continuing in my thread, like I said, the goal is to destroy the 
hegemonic. Now we understand the idea of of hegemony, the idea that there's like a cultural force field. And like Gramsci said, the family is one of the key institutions that perpetuates and maintains this. And we'll hear this from these other thinkers as well. Um, One of the narratives, according to these cultural and identity Marxists, neo-Marxists, one of the narratives as they frame it that maintains cultural hegemony through the institution of the family is in fact childhood innocence. They believe that childhood innocence is something that people make up and work to maintain specifically so that they can, as they they would actually do in a total iron law of woke projection reversal, they would say that we're grooming children into the existing social relations and trying to maintain them by keeping children in a state of innocence until they are old enough to you know, start to transition into adult knowledge and adult themes and so on. Um, the, the idea that children should, should have a period of innocence in their lives, which is by the way, psychologically developmentally appropriate. When you look at actual robust developmental psychology, it is actually appropriate. We actually know, for example, that having inappropriate relationships between adults and children that are either romantic or sexual can, for example, lead to, um, disorders like schizoidal personality disorder. It's actually psychologically massively damaging to a young child to be sexualized or to be um, dragged into other adult romantic and sexual themes. But nevertheless, they do it. Childhood innocence becomes a target. And I said in this thread, again, July of 2020, I tried to tell people the most obvious way wokeness goes after the innocence of children is in the queer variant of trans activism, especially by having trans strippers, for example, performing for children in schools. Why would they do this? Well, the belief is that the innocence we encourage in children is part of the systems of power that they believe organize society. These are specifically in queer theory generated through something they call performativity, that we're actually performing our roles in society. So childhood innocence is a performance that's imposed upon children by adults so that they'll be uh, unaware of the potentials of, you know, sexual liberation and all of this. So they can be groomed as we'll hear from Marcuse, literally groomed into the idea that work is good. And this is a major theme for the neo-Marxists. This is what the basis of the sexual liberation movement actually was in the sixties is to break free of, of redirecting our so-called sexual energy into productive work so that we could, um, you know, achieve things. And rather we should just basically become, hedonistically and sexually indulgent to liberate the libido and liberate Eros as he has it, as Marcusa has it in Eros and civilization so that people can live a better liberated life rather than one where they have become chained to the idea of work, which sustains capitalism, which they think is what uh, provides a good life by the 1960s. They would have believed that it provides a good life, but not a perfect life. And they see this idea of childhood innocence as something that maintains the basically, you know, you, you're brainwashing children to believe that they should be, you know, the innocence is important and there's something valuable about it. And that sexual things are adult themes and romantic themes are adult themes. And it's something we keep away from children so that children become moldable into the existing system where they're taught to be productive in terms of work. They're taught to be, um, moldable to the to the existing relations of society they're brainwashed into the capitalist system as the marxists had it paulo freire had the same idea his idea of the banking model of education where the children are just like bank accounts that adults are the teachers are just placing knowledge into their heads 
and it's not this interactive thing. And so he had this whole idea that we're going to now deconstruct the, the power relation between teacher and student. And we're now going to reconceive of it where there are going to be teachers and students need to be dialectically synthesized into teacher students and student teachers who are basically on par with one another or even that students because of their oppressed status by the power dynamic of the teacher become slightly more empowered than the um, teacher. And so the te it's a student-led uh, education program and a student-led um, revolution, actually, that's the student movement that Marcuse is typing into when we read his other works. And I can summarize those here, but I've summarized them so many other places. But Marcuse said that the students are the radicalizable base that you can actually in inculcate theory into and get them to bring it into the other disaffected groups, the unemployed, the societal dissidents, probably including the so-called minor attracted pedophiles, um, the outsiders, but also the racial minorities, the sexual minorities, the feminists, and so on, that he wanted to co-opt into a new working class because the working class had been stabilized by the successes of a more mature capitalism that we were experiencing through the 20th century. So what I said here, and go back to the thread, the belief is that the innocence we encourage in children is part of the systems of power specifically generated through performativity, so pretending, we're all pretending that this is how things should be, that enforce heteronormativity and cisnormativity and thus lead to dysphoria and oppression of gay and potentially trans kids. And so the idea is that, you know, we have to rescue those kids. And so I said this logic here isn't terribly complicated. There may be gay or trans kids in the classroom, say, who would be more comfortable in their sexual or gender identity, if that makes sense for a kid. And I say that it doesn't. And that gen and the end in their gender identity, if they saw disruptions to the usual binaries and standards being celebrated, this disruption is simple. The exhibition of sexuality, especially queer sexualities and trans people demonstrating queer sexualities, the cultural prohibition on this behavior is usually chalked up to or put to, as I said, childhood innocence, which is now viewed as a dominant discourse that enforces these normativities and enables children to go long enough to where they are also going to think that childhood innocence was a valuable part of their growing up. It should be maintained. It should be uh, pressed into the next generation and that the right morals can be brought in, such as that sexuality is an adult theme. Romantic uh, involvement is an adult theme. It's Something uh, obviously that adolescents are likely to and probably in some regards should be experimenting with in, in limited cases, but it's also certainly got to be framed in terms of, it, terms of its developmental context as uh, children who for whom these themes are completely inappropriate mature through a rocky adolescence and emerging adulthood into full adults for whom it's completely appropriate and largely uh, significant, if not central to the way that we uh, interact and organize things when we're not um, focused on other projects, which, by the way, generate prosperity and wealth. Uh, it turns out, by the way, that sitting at your house masturbating doesn't generate prosperity or wealth. It doesn't build a better society. Uh, sitting around, even if it's not masturbating, screwing around with another person, like having sex all day, doesn't generate prosperity or wealth. Um, and so... This is the liberation that they want to achieve, not just in adults, though, but starting in children so that they don't reproduce that dominant discourse about childhood innocence. And so I said in the thread that sexualizing children's spaces, therefore, becomes a logical consequence of queering both spaces and queering childhood in order to, quote, liberate the potentialities of children's identities. And this requires a disruption of childhood innocence. 
And it's seen as righteous queer activism. And like I said, we'll tie in later, but it's the same in race. In fact, you know, it applies in critical race theory specifically too, not quite so coarsely, but they actually have an idea that white people have white innocence and that white children are raised to be innocent of racial uh, themes and racial issues. And that is an aspect of white privilege that needs to be dismantled. And so racial innocence is also anti-racist baby, for example, starting very early. Racial innocence also has to be overcome so that they can have their anti-racist uh utopia that they believe they're going to have. And so what you see in both cases is this attempt to groom children politically by destroying the idea that children can just be children and we don't have to racialize children and more, much more importantly, we shouldn't sexualize children. So in critical race theory, the, the racial innocence of children is taken to be a kind of social breeding ground for a culture of white supremacy. It's where children are allegedly socialized, I said, into Charles Mills' very conspiratorial racial contract that maintains white supremacy. If you don't know what Charles Mills wrote, he recently died, by the way. Um, Charles Mills wrote a book in the late 90s called The Racial Contract, where he reinvents Rousseau's idea of the social contract to say that all white people as the dominant group in society organize a racial social contract called The Racial Contract. Nobody's ever told about it. Nobody ever knows about it. Nobody ever says it, but it's a, a tacit agreement that all white people, by virtue of being white, agree to to keep racial minorities down. It's a huge conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory where nobody even knows they're a conspirator. It's so deeply conspiratorial. And this is actually a heart and soul idea in critical race theory. Now, of course, my griefer contingent that follows me around on Twitter and says that I'm wrong about everything when I'm not uh, likes to say, that, oh, no, 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 Charles Mills was not a critical race theorist. That's very specific. He was a critical philosopher of race. And it's like, you know, fuck off. Like, come on. We're not this stupid. Get out of here. Um, in critical race theory, which, of course, I know a little bit better than queer theory still, it asserts that anything that maintains white racial comfort is suspect. The racial innocence of childhood, as in trading people as individuals, having non-racial environments, is considered, therefore, to be seriously problematic in critical race theory. And it makes room for white supremacy culture to flourish and grow for the, the, the white racial contract to establish itself in the next generation. And so for them, for critical race theorists, it must be intervened upon through projects like Anti-Racist Baby, teaching critical race theory in schools, bringing it in through social emotional learning as a social uh, awareness component, um, teaching children not to be racially innocent, um, which again is a, for them, a white privilege only available to white kids because minority race children or other race children are then uh, non-white children, except apparently not Asians, are having their race imposed upon them. That's the idea in critical race theory that that the societal structure of white supremacy exists and it imposes race on all the races but white who get to ignore their race, which of course um, doesn't actually even align with anything that's been happening at least in the last 30 years, uh, <laughs> like people making fun of white people and calling things white and white culture, this and that which is also racist and preposterous, uh, has been a mainstay of pop culture for 30 years. I and mean, this is just idiotic that they pretend that this is still a thing. But the goal is to immediately remove the racial innocence of children because the innocence of children is a target that must be destroyed. So CRT is a little bit more insidious in this project where queer theory is flagrantly inappropriate. Um, you know, in this thread, 
a year and a half ago, I was talking about trans stripper story hour or whatever. But now we have quite literally, you know, some very frightening sexual grooming behavior going on again through social emotional learning SEL uh, and where they're having, for example, I saw an example from North Carolina where a seventh grade classroom, uh, young women or girls, girls, 12, 12 girls, seventh grade girls, young adolescent girls are being asked to um, describe the changes in writing for their teacher, sometimes to be read in class out loud in front of everybody or shared in front of everybody, sometimes maybe even with identities attached, to describe the changes happening to their body, how it feels to be growing breasts, what it feels like to be looked at as you grow breasts. You know, what are the changes happening to your buttocks? How are people paying attention to you? Do you feel the looks of the other people? They're being asked to do this in a seventh grade classroom. This is this is this is sexual grooming. This is the destruction at a very complicated and difficult time when kids are literally trying to figure this out and it's not easy. And they, you know, should be able to rely upon responsible mentors who, by the way, are not state actors, who, by the way, are caught up in a deeply politicized critical ideology. They should be able be able to rely on trusted mentors to like parents uh, to guide them through this. If this was a church youth group engaging in these kinds of behaviors, hellfire would come down on them as it being an obvious like grooming ring and everybody wants to burn the creepy youth pastor uh, for not literally burn or maybe literally burn for grooming kids who have often been sexually abused in those contexts, which is a tremendous tragedy because it's the ability to exploit the a very trusted religious institution in order to, to harm children. At least the youth pastor is just a creeper. And I, I, that sounds like a sick thing to say, but he's not also a Marxist unless he is and has infiltrated. He's probably just a creeper taking advantage of the situation. In the schools, we have actually a Marxist ideology driving this project and not doing it so that the creeper can pick a handful of people that he's going to abuse or she's going to abuse, as often happens, but rather so that you can destabilize the identities of the children and remove them from a culture of childhood innocence. Um, so it's very uh, flagrant in this regard. Uh, again, CRT insists that racial innocence is part of the operation of whiteness. It's only available for white kids or white people or white passing people. So this is an aspect of white privilege. Others obviously covet this and they're going to take up and act white or subscribe to white adjacency so that they can, you know, suck up to whiteness so that they can be allowed by white people to become considered white and treated as white. That's the way that this is a disgusting way critical race theory deals with it. But the sexual side is just so much worse. Um, you know, so I, in the thread, you know, I talk about this. I keep going back to critical race theory because especially at the time, I definitely knew it better than queer theory. But I say as a last point, the innocence of children, thus the opposite of that in adults, is set up as its own power dynamic that a critical theory of education sees as illegitimate and needs of disruption. This is where Paulo Freire comes in with his idea that the student and teacher relationship needs to be inverted, that everybody's on common footing, teachers and teachers and students, an inappropriate mentor relationship has to develop now. And when you start adding in a sexual dimension, just imagine you have a bunch of young people, children who are being brought to a, oh no, we're all equals here. We're all the same by some creepy groomer. And this is happening in the classrooms. Because children in critical theory of education, which is called critical pedagogy, I'm about to focus on that when I can finally get out of this mire of um, 
kind of the sick stuff and Marcusa and all of this. Uh, I'm really going to do a deep dive into critical pedagogy soon. But within critical pedagogy, children cannot be allowed to remain innocent because they have to be seen as co-equal with adults and instructors. And in fact, they're sort of a noble savage of a sense, if you will. They're uncorrupted or less corrupted by the dominant discourses and the power dynamics structuring society. And so the goal is to catch them and groom them earlier. And let me just reiterate, this is actually happening in at scale in our government schools, but also in private schools, but primarily in our government schools under brand names or within the umbrella of broader brands like social emotional learning, specifically transformative social emotional learning and the Castle model, C-A-S-E-L model, where the S-E-L obviously stands for social emotional learning. Um, because you have to disrupt childhood innocence in order to disrupt the institution of the family and the role, the the um, clear difference in role between adult and child, where adults are mentors and boundary setters and guides and responsible and children are exploring and learning and growing and they need boundaries, they need um mentorship. They need guidance. They need structure. They need to actually be, this is all developmental psychology I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about some kind of, as they would have it, hegemonic narrative. I'm not caught up. They would, they would claim that I have been brainwashed by this and I think it's right and natural. And that developmental psychology is a narrative that I am, a, a scientific narrative that I invoke in order to defend my hegemonic belief that I've been brainwashed in and to believe that it's right and natural. But no, it's just actually true. Of course, the postmodern belief is that anything that is claimed to be true is is to be understood as an application of power and a reassertion of power, and therefore it may or may not really be true. And it's not actually interesting if it's true or not, because truth is just a social construction. Um, and so they want to destroy the childhood innocence because it infiltrates the institution of family, one generation to the next, developing a stable basis upon which the culture can maintain. And in fact, goodness can be maintained against the evil of Marxism. And so uh, children, I said, are, are cannot be left innocent if they're to be co-equal with the teachers and instructors or more to the point, they have to be seen in terms of an oppressed status. Children are oppressed by adults, kind of an ageism argument. Uh, and they, so they have to be elevated uh, to the same level as adults, um, but defiant against the adults who they are being taught are oppressing them. This is the creation of a red guard, just like in Maoist China. The programs that are happening in our schools are following the same playbook that Mao put into the schools in China in the 1960s before the red guard started to kill teachers, kill professors, kill parents and grandparents, destroy the existing society, tear down all of the, the art and artifacts that's not part of the communist regime. Childhood innocence becomes one of the targets that must be disrupted to do this. Um, what this is, this is, this is child abuse. This, the right names for this, this is child abuse. This is grooming, both sexual and uh, political. And it is absolutely abhorrent, but it's also part of a broader Marxist program. And again, the people doing this, the people bringing this in to some degree are either totally caught up in this way of thinking and maybe don't realize it, but they're completely programmed within this Marxist way of thinking, 
or they are actually aware of what it's doing. And this is where we can kind of turn backwards and look a hundred years ago, we have this fellow, George Lukács. I've talked about George Lukács in the past. George Lukács was a Hungarian Marxist. Uh, he's probably the, he, he was even more like, so Lenin was what's known as a vanguardist or a, a Bolshevik that uses the vanguard model. So what you need then is an elite who are going to usher society through the revolution that it doesn't necessarily want for its own good. And so he was, he was more Bolshevist, in fact, than Lenin, which Lenin was the leader of the Bolshevists. Uh, he was very invested in this program. He was very instrumental in the 1919 uh, uh, attempt to turn Hungary uh, communist, which failed after four or five months, four months, I think. So he was a um, Hungarian Bolshevist. Uh, he worked in, it's called the um, Bela Kun regime, but it, it was, it was the, the, the regime uh, of communism taking over Hungary uh, with this revolution. He was actually put as um, the kind of second in command deputy commissar uh, for culture and education in this regime, and uh, which failed, of course. And one of his, I mean, he stated, you can read, for example, in History and Class Consciousness, which is his most famous book, um, he, was, he was openly hostile to wanting to tear down Christianity and Christian morality in particular, seeing those as kind of the big obstacles throughout Europe that were preventing any possibility of uh, bringing in Marxism. And um, in a sense, therefore, Lukács, not so much Gramsci, becomes like the father of cultural Marxism. Uh he wanted to destroy the existing cultural morality, cultural stock of the European countries because he believed that it's like basically one of the best ways to be able to bring Marxism in or to remove the greatest impediment to it because uh, a society that has a mature and operating theology is going to be extraordinarily resistant to Marxist theology. And we must think of it that way. I'll do another podcast on that soon, probably the next one. And it kind of wedges the previous one before this one, probably depending on how they get released. Um, a recent one covered this necessity of theology. And uh, the next one I'm going to do after this one, and hopefully they'll get released in the right order. Uh, unless I get confused. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on the idea that, uh, that all of Marxism is a theology is in fact, I would refer to it as a cancerous or gangrenous uh, theology that's taking, taking advantage of a society that's become weak and sick or a broad, broader theology that's become weak and sick, a cultural basis has become weak and sick. And so the gangrene or cancer can grow and flourish within that context. And so Lukács actually believed he's the origin of sex education. Frankly, he believed that educating children and dragging them into out of childhood innocence, especially with regard to sex, would actually destabilize sexual morality and therefore Christian morality in society more effectively than anything else. So he actually instituted in his role as deputy commissar of culture and education in Hungary, he instituted compulsory sex education in schools. That was not just like, oh, this is what sex is. This is the birds and the bees. This is the where babies come from. This is, you know, in 1919 or 20 or whatever, what this is what safe sex looks like. That was a more modern conception, which, you know, it's controversial. And it's a question of, is it the parent's role or the state's role or who, whose role is it? 
but not many people object to the idea of teaching those ideas in one context or another. They may object to the schools teaching it, but they don't necessarily object to it being taught. The idea of, you know, how does sex work? What is it? When is it appropriate? How do you do it safely? How do you do it responsibly? What are the, you know, feelings and things that are going to get wrapped up in it? I mean, that's a very parent kind of role there. You know, how does it attach to, you know, procreation? How is it, how is it, um, responsibly recreation, you know, whatever the different things are. This wasn't Lukács did. Lukács did things that in, in, in the Hungary in the 19, early 1919-1920, they're going to sound very reminiscent of what you're hearing today under the brand name Comprehensive Sex Education, which is part of the broader um, program, including the Social Emotional Learning Program. And he introduced a very radical program that included um, graphic literature to the children, for example. He very uh, strongly uh, promoted sexual promiscuity again in children in schools. He, pro, he, you know, he pushed the narrative that monogamy is bad and not natural, and in fact should be made fun of. It should be mocked. And of course, parents who are trying to teach you this conservative moral sexual ethic are um, backwards, and and uh, the, the, they deserve to be, you know also mocked and that deserves to be rejected that that's causing the problems of society um in each of these topics of course there are always little kernels of truth like for example um the mocking of monogamy monogamy is a challenging feature if you look at the statistics just to be real about it the statistics do not support that human beings are good at monogamy but that doesn't mean that it's not a valuable thing or at least as an ideal to aspire to um this, you know, the number of people who are who cheat through their relationships or whatever, it turns out to be rather staggering. What, what the the people who uh, look into these things or, or operate in these spaces call non-ethical or unethical non-monogamy um, cheating. In other words, uh, you know, there, there's some pretty robust arguments out there that I think that human beings struggle with this for pretty deeply seated reasons. Um, and that it does require an ethic to maintain fidelity. And I'm even content to admit that there's room for debate and flexibility in terms of what fidelity entails, uh, for sure, to deal with the reality of human sexuality. But this isn't what we're talking about. This is the open mockery of monogamy in favor of, you know, free love, polyamory, blah, blah, blah. And again, this is in the 1919 uh, in Hungary, and the Hungarians were appalled by this and ultimately pushed this regime out, probably partly because they went too far with this sexual crap. Four to six months, this whole th the regime kind of fell apart. Um, so it didn't get very far. And you think, okay, so Lukács' program failed, except it didn't because he actually, he, he didn't go away. He didn't die. He didn't get killed. He actually went on to inform the, the Frankfurt School as it came into existence. He actually met with and liaised and for, for example, Austria and Vienna with, with um, Antonio Gramsci, who I've already met, mentioned, Max Horkheimer was was present in some of this. He actually also um, went to this kind of Marxist study week held in Frankfurt, and he delivered these ideas on sex education and its role to this kind of Frankfurt-based Marxist convention around the you know these very early 1920s and maybe 1920 itself. And there in the audience is Felix Vale. And Felix Vale, 
is the financier of the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt at Goethe University. In other words, the Frankfurt School, the creation of neo-Marxism came from, you got bankrolled by this guy who wanted to see this stuff come in. And one of the things that he was really captured by was Lukács' ideas that, you know, we needed this kind of what we would now call comprehensive sex education that's actually very destabilizing of the existing morality. That sexual ethics being taught through a narrative of childhood innocence and maintaining childhood innocence and also just Christian and more broadly traditional sexual morality must be destabilized if we're going to have a kind of cultural change that'll make room through Christendom for Marxism. So many of Lukács' ideas, again, he should be more than Gramsci, considered the father of cultural Marxism, made its way in there. And the Institute for Social Research, otherwise known as the Frankfurt School, is neo-Marxism. And they had all kinds of things to try to tear down the existing culture and its morals. And so, uh, you know, among them, you know, we have to get rid of basically every traditional attitude. This is like Mao getting rid of the four olds, traditional uh, ways of, you know, old ways of thinking, old habits, old customs, um, old ideas. And so traditional sexual morality that men are men and women are women and masculinity won't always necessarily fit if we want to put this in a more contemporary context, but it should be encouraged in men. Femininity won't always fit, and it doesn't necessarily need to be judged harshly, but should be encouraged in women, and rather instead promoting things like androgyny, what we would now see as gender fluidity, non-binary, trans, etc., but also um, trying to bring in this kind of sexual, new sexual morality. Uh, and so we don't have a responsible sex education that's come from a tradition that's been captured by these uh, creepers, these groomers, Marxists in uh, a marriage of convenience with the sexual groomers. It is a project to destroy traditional Christian, Christian sexual ethics, but also to destroy, like, let's say that the Christian sexual ethic goes too far, right? Let's just, for the sake of argument, say that it goes too far, that there's some wiggle room around this, and it doesn't necessarily fit everybody. I would say that there is actually, you know, a human nature-based and developmental psychology-based sexual ethic that the Christian approach approximates. If we say that it goes too far, I would say it approximates it fairly well, but not perfectly. And the goal is to destroy that. Why? Well, if we look back to Gramsci, we see that the goal is to destroy the family as an institution, the ability to transmit values from one generation to the next to keep a stable society. And then they brand this liberation, freedom, a different kind of freedom, a higher freedom, highest freedom. And that freedom is going to... uh, allow people, you know, it's going to, it's going to lead to the people who are groomed into this way of thinking, into believing that the previous, the the older culture is actually oppressing them and holding them down and holding them back. So you can see exactly how this works within the context of what's happening in our schools today. We get forward in time. So this is 1920 or thereabouts, plus or minus three years. Um, The Institute for Social Research, the Frankfurt School was officially 
formed in 1923. Uh, the Hungarian Revolution was in 1919. The Bolshevik Revolution was in 1917. So if we look at that six-year span from 1917 to 1923, you see the birth of cultural Marxism and the two kind of biggest players being Antonio Gramsci, who had not yet gone to prison. It was 1926, so he's a little while he's still working. And um, George Lukács, who had this very, what we would now identify as basically queer theory being pressed into the schools specifically to subvert traditional and Christian sexual morality and the family uh, in concert with that. Why? So they could achieve Marxism. By the 1950s, 1955 in specific, we have Herbert Marcuse trying to achieve one of the broad aims of the Frankfurt School. He's now the director of the Frankfurt School by this point, um, or about to become, I don't remember exactly which year he became in charge of it, Horkheimer and Adorno set it aside, or Horkheimer set it aside so that he and Adorno could do more theoretical work again together at some point, and Marcuse took it over. His directorship of an institute is its own administrative work. And so in 1955 anyway, so it's probably before he took directorship because he's doing a lot of very theoretical work, um, one of the goals was to fuse Freudian thought, in particular Freud being overwhelmingly concerned with sex and sexuality and how that is uh, creates psycho, psycho uh, pathologies in people. Uh, in fact, Freud was just obsessed with sex. What's the joke? Um, you know, for, so you could imagine like a meme with Sigmund Freud and a, you know, storied image of him with his hand on his chin or something like that. And it says, you know, aha, it's not that I want to have sex with my mother. It's that Everybody wants to have sex with their mother, that being the Oedipus complex. And Freud was absolutely obsessed with the Oedipus complex and the way that it's, you know, that, that we use even themes of like childhood innocence to suppress sexuality and sublimate it into productive work. But this Oedipus complex causes all kinds of psychopathology because it's a fundamental, the desire to apparently have sex with your mother as when you're a child. Uh, is not being reckoned with appropriately in Freudian psychology, which of course is all crackpot nonsense. And so the Frankfurt School actually took up the project of fusing Marx and Freud and Eros and Civilization by Herbert Marcuse in 1955 was his attempt to really do it. It's a difficult book to read unless you know a lot about Freud um, and also neo-Marxism as it's coming along. But you can get some sense of this, again, destruction of childhood innocence there. I'll just read a little bit from Eros and Civilization. Um, so let's see, where should I start this? Uh, so I'll just kind of start in the middle, just in the middle of a, a paragraph. Uh, the notion of the conservative nature of the instincts under the rule of the pleasure and nirvana principles strictly precludes such assumptions that there's an, in, an original instinct of workmanship and wanting to work, in other words, is what he's what these these principles are, uh, or these assumptions are. So Freud and with him Marcuse are rejecting the idea that humans actually want to be productive, uh, and he says so. It's, he calls these a conservative nature of the instincts, um, and he's comparing it against the pleasure principle, which is of course the free is basically for them hedonism. It's the freedom of uh, the freeing of the libido, and the nirvana principle is the desire to basically return to the womb when there was literally no problems. Um, and so this idea of you know getting back to complete a different kind of complete innocence, and that'll come back up in a minute. Uh, so he says when Freud incidentally mentions the natural human aversion to work. 
He only draws the inference from his basic theoretical conception. The instinctual syndrome, unhappiness in work, recurs throughout Freud's writings. And his interpretation of the Prometheus myth is centered on the connection between curbing of sexual passion and civilized work. So this is the big theme. So civilized for for Freud and then for Marcuse taking it even further in a neo-Marxist direction, people don't actually really want to work or not very much. And what happens is that society forces them to take, they actually want to enjoy their lives, be hedonistic, have sex, probably eat gluttonous foods, etc., lay around and just kind of en- enjoy themselves libidinally. And their claim is that society, and for Freud, it causes all these psychopathologies. And for Mar- uh, Marcuse, not only does it cause the Freudian psychopathologies, but it also uh, maintains capitalism and a, 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 um, a condition of servitude, as he phrases it throughout much of his work. This is actually their attack, by the way, on the Protestant work ethic, uh, which the belief, which was actually very sexually repressive as well. And the idea is that, that that they're attacking is you must take your sexual urge and drive it, suppress it, repress it, and turn it into the drive to do productive work in the world. Um, you know, so when you look at people like John Harvey Kellogg, who was a uh, Seventh Day Adventist, if you don't know, um, inventing cornflakes to suppress masturbations. He believed that if you ate very plain foods, as you you would have a lower sex drive and could be more work productive. No kidding, that's where cornflakes came from. If you didn't know that, <laughs> all of the grain based cereals and grain based diet was was actually a kind of crackpot religious attempt to suppress sexuality so that people would be more productive in work. But here, what we have is Freud talking about and Marcuse talking about Freud talking about the repression of sexuality in order to be more productive workers for a capitalist system that traps them into this cycle. And that this is all a gigantic fake narrative or meta narrative that needs to be smashed uh, because people don't actually like to work. It's not actually good for them. And plus it's maintaining this oppressive system where everybody's going along with an oppression state that even though it makes a society that works for people, it's actually terrible because we're suppressing our libido, redirecting it into things like work, which we actually don't like. And the repression of sexuality and the over emphasis of work cause all of these psychological problems and unhappiness. So we could be so much more happy if we were just liberated. And so what, what Marcuse writes here is the basic work in civilization is non-libidinal, is labor. Labor, he says, though, is unpleasantness. And such unpleasantness has to be enforced. So now you see that where he starts talking all the time about the so-called administered state or the administered society. You have people, people don't want to work. It's unpleasant to work. You don't Sometimes you want to work, but you don't always want to work. You don't want to work nearly as much as you do. In Marxism, you don't want to work for somebody else so that your surplus value can be exploited and make somebody else rich. Um, so there must be an enforcement mechanism, a power dynamic pushing you to work. Uh, and so he says you know, th- that they identify that, that the basic work in civilization is non-libidinal. You're not just jerking off all day. It's labor. And labor is unpleasantness. And such unpleasant unpleasantness has to be enforced. That's the structure, basic structure of society, the that they're rebelling against here. And he he says, um, quoting, for what motive would induce man to put his sexual energy to other uses if, by any disposal of it, he could obtain fully satisfying pleasure? He would never let go of this pleasure and would make no further progress. So that is the uh, thing that they're criticizing. 
Marcuse goes on and he says, if there is no original work instinct, if people don't actually want to work, then the energy required for unpleasurable work must be the withdraw- must be withdrawn from the primary instincts, from the sexual and the destructive instincts. So the libido and the libido dominandi, uh, the will to dominate and to destroy. Um, Eros and Thanatos is what he's going to refer to mythologically. Since civilization is mainly the work of Eros, so Eros is, you know, the myth, right? So the, 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 I think he's a demigod. I can't remember if he's a full god in Greek mythology. Um, represents the sexual energy, and that's the creative instinct. And the destructive instinct, or Thanatos, the death instinct. So you have cr- the, the creation and destruction uh, in, in tension here is what he's talking about. And that this, you know, those myths speak to something deep within the psyche, the psyche, the creative element and the destructive element. And he says that the civilization is mainly the work of the creative element of Eros. It, so therefore, it is first of all the withdrawal of libido. Culture obtains a great part of the mental energy it needs by subtracting it from sexuality. That's his argument. But not only the work impulses are thus fed by, uh, sorry, there's a typo here in the book because aim inhibited, I don't think, well, maybe it is a word. Uh, I don't know what that word means though, and I'm not going to Google it. Not only, uh, but not only the work impulses are thus fed by aim inhibited sexuality, AIM inhibited. Specific, the specifically social instincts, such as the affectionate relations between parents and children, feelings of friendship, and the emotional ties in marriage contain such impulses which are held back by internal resistance from attaining their aims. Only by virtue of such renuncia- uh, renunciation do they become sociable. So the <laughs> affectionate relations between parents and children, feelings of friendship, and the emotional ties in marriage only become sociable by the virtue of, renun- re- of renouncing the sexual element underlying them. It's kind of very Freudian, but again, tied to Marx, Marxian thought. Each individual contributes his renunciations first under the impact of external compulsion and then internally, so learning to self-regulate. And from these sources, the common stock of the material and ideal wealth of civilization has been accumulated. Although Freud remarks that these social instincts need not be described as sublimated because they have not abandoned their sexual aims but rest content with certain approximations of satisfaction, he calls them closely related to sublimation. Thus, the main spheres of civilization appear the main sphere of civilization appears as a sphere of sublimation, but sublimation involves desexualization. Notice he just mentioned the affectionate relations between parents and children, and that's something that therefore has to be broken down for the neo-Marxist approach. That's the thing that they're actually attacking. So this idea of childhood innocence is under attack in Marcusa, and again, I keep telling people we live in Marcuse's world, but it's not just that. Um, you know, this is a project. Marcuse was heavily informed by the thoughts of Lukács, who understood this, and he was also very involved in the sexual liberation movement. Um, and so we can actually see him later attacking, directly attacking, the idea of of innocence and in the usual Marxian inverted way, which is that if you actually flip the thing upside down, you get, you get real innocence by becoming not innocent is basically what he's saying. And, um, that I guess that's a philosophy. He says, let me see where do I want to start this second quote from later in the book. 
Um, I had the spot. Because uh, I don't want to talk about all this ego and super ego nonsense. Um, although it actually matters. Within this antagonistic system, the mental conflict between ego and superego, between ego and id, so this is very Freudian, is at one and the same time a conflict between the individual and his society. The latter embodies the rationality of the whole, ego versus id, and the individual struggle against the repressive forces as a struggle against objective reason. You see where Marcuse's line of attack is. Therefore, the emergence of a non-repressive reality principle involving instinctual liberation would regress behind the attained level of civilized rationality. This regression would be physical as well as social. It would reactivate early stages of the libido, which were surpassed in the development of the reality ego, and it would dissolve the institutions of society in which the reality ego exists. So if we sexually liberate, we're in business. In terms of the, for liberation, for communism, in terms of these institutions, instinctual liberation is relapse into barbarism. However, occurring at the height of civilization as the consequence, not of defeat, but of victory in the struggle for existence and supported by a free society, such liberation might have very different results. See, if we just get all of our heads straight about how this works, we're not going to have a catastrophe. It's going to work this time. He says, it would still be a reversal of the process of civilization, a subversion of culture, but after culture had done its work and created the mankind and the world that could be free. So we're going to push through the idea of civilization into communism, and we're going to do so by, de- by, by, by rejecting innocence. Where better to do that than in children? who must have their effective ties between parents and and child freed from the repressive state that removes the sexual element. It would still be regression, he says, but in light of the mature consciousness, mature consciousness, that's meaning you're a Marxist, but in light of the mature consciousness and guided by a new rationality, which is the neo-Marxism and critical theory for him, um, but scientific socialism for Marx, under these conditions, the possibility of a non-repressive civilization is predicated upon not the arrest, but upon the liberation of progress, so that man would order his life in accordance with his fully developed knowledge, so that he would ask again what is good and what is evil. So we're going to throw everything morality-based into question. If the guilt accumulated in the civilized domination of man by man can ever be redeemed by freedom, then the original sin must be committed again. We must again eat from the tree of knowledge in order to fall back into the state of innocence. See that? The notion, he says, of a non-repressive instinctual order must first be tested on the most disorderly of all instincts, namely sexuality. Non-repressive order is only possible if the sex instincts can, by virtue of their own dynamic and underchanged existential and societal conditions, generate lasting erotic relations among mature individuals. Now, here's an important point. Mature individuals. But if you obliterate the concept of childhood innocence as a social fiction used to maintain the existing social conditions and relations, if you obliterate that, everybody who's sexually awakened, even at six years old, is a mature individual. Everybody who has the consciousness embedded into them is a mature individual. You catch, do you understand what is happening here? 
This is, this is the father of the world that we live in today under leftism. And under the dominance of leftism, we gave to education. We must, if we want to achieve non-repressive order, in other words, communism, that's only possible if the sex instincts, by virtue of their own dynamic and under changed existential and societal conditions, generate lasting erotic relations among mature individuals. And I'm sure they get to define mature as having the awakened consciousness. So we have to ask, he says, whether that, but he's hidden it there, right? It's, it's <laughs> destroy childhood innocence hidden because you don't necessarily know what he means by mature individuals. He doesn't say adults. He says mature individuals. He doesn't say adults. So then he says, we have to ask whether the sex instincts after the elimination of all surplus repression can develop a libidinal rationality, which is not only compatible with, but even promotes progress toward higher forms of civilized freedom. And this is to be done how? By asking again, what is good and evil? By eating from the tree of knowledge in order to fall back into the state of innocence. This is the project, right? This is the project of neo-Marxism with regard to sex and sexuality. And in fact, with regard to Lukács' vision of what we would now call comprehensive sex education. This is the basis for what's actually going on horrifically in our grooming government schools, our groomer-based government schools. So if you want to understand what's actually going on in our schools, you really do have to understand. We could gibber about how, you know, Foucault was clearly trying to, you know, obliterate lots of morality so he could be a pedophile. And so post-structuralism or post-modernism is often embedded with these same ideas. What does it mean to be an adult? What, you know, why do we need an age of consent? There's an infamous, you know, petition that all the big post-modernists signed in the seventies asking to remove the age of consent in France completely. I think it was 15 years old at the time. And it was, nope, not young enough. Let's get rid of it completely because it's just a social construction. It's just a fiction. We could talk about the post-structuralist feminists who garbled Foucault and Derrida, who also signed the petition, take this idea up. Uh, Judith Butler, Gail Rubin, who you know openly defends pedophilia in her 1984 um, Thinking Sex, which was a maybe the foundational document for what became queer theory out of gender ideology. Um, these people could we could also comment on them, you know, in the development of queer theory. But I think it's a topic for another day. What I wanted to give you is this picture that what's happening in our schools with regard to these groomer books, which have to be understood as groomer books, isn't some weird accident that just cropped up. It's not just stupid weirdos that got into schools. It's not even just pedophiles. It's pedophiles and groomers and sexual weirdos being driven by a Marxist ideology that knows that destabilizing sexual morality by deconstructing childhood innocence, by framing it as a false narrative and socially constructive imposition of power from one generation to the next, that they can create conditions in which there will be great societal unrest, that children will be not just sexually groomable and abusable and thus perpetuating the cycle of abuse from which all of this really springs, the abused often become abusers. This whole movement is predicated on people being abusers, so here we go. Uh, but not only can they do all of that, but they can also politically groom people into becoming what Mao referred to as a red guard that wants to overthrow. Here's this thing you're very interested in, you know, sex and sexuality. You're adolescent. It becomes very powerful, but you have a destabilized identity without an essence. You don't know who you are. 
and then you're being groomed at school into thinking of yourself in terms of a sexual identity and a gender identity and even weird romantic identities. And there's hundreds of them and they're fluid and they move around and you can't really know who you are. And the reason that you're going through this crazy process of self-discovery and everything so confusing is actually because the older generation lied to you the entire time. And why did they lie to you? So they could maintain power structures that are evil, like cis-heteronormativity, homophobia, transphobia, racism. They wanted to maintain the social order that benefited them. So it keeps benefiting them into old age and they're oppressing you. They're doing a violence as Judith Butler kind of referred to a violence of categorization on you, the child, the student, the adolescent who can't even figure out who you really are, your true sexual and gender and romantic identity in essence. The whole point is to destabilize children to make them politically groomable into hating the existing order of society so they can overthrow it. And all of the psychological and physical and sexual abuse of children that will come part and parcel with this, hey, it's just part of the process as far as they're concerned. That's an externality. In fact, it's kind of net beneficial, but, you know, they have to distance themselves from it so that they can look like good people, at least until, you know, if Lukács had had his revolution, Hungary would have had a dark, dark day through the 1920s in terms of absolute destruction of sexual morality. Um, so you can get a pretty good sense of um, what's going on when you kind of get this longer view. And again, we could talk about Paulo Freire and his view that we have to basically find ways to bring adults and children in educational environments to the same level, that there is no structure. There are no um, values that so-called hidden curriculum, critical pedagogy talks about. There are no values being brought to you. In fact, the values that society is trying to impose on you, young, radicalizable, confused, angry person whose hormones are out of whack and whose brain isn't fully developed yet, that, that's what's being imposed on you just to keep you repressed from who you really are. You should hate it. You should hate the society that did it to you. You should hate everything. You're miserable because these stupid older adults have the wrong culture that we could all be liberated from. And that's the political grooming that's connected to the sexual and psychological grooming that's rooted in queer theory that's being mainlined into our schools through gender ideology and queer theory under the brands of social emotional learning, for example, uh, and comprehensive sex education. And you must understand that this is very intentional. This is a, this is not just people doing things. It's not people actually trying to help. There are lots of useful idiots just trying to help, you know, gay children and, you know, gender dysphoric children. This is a grooming project by people with an incredibly radical political agenda that want to destabilize all of Western civilization. And if they have to destroy your children to do it, they're more than they're not only willing, they're eager because that's part of what it is. The cycle of abuse marches on one page after another, one generation after another, and they are trying to not close down that cycle of abuse or minimize that cycle of abuse. They're trying to invert it and say that the cycle of abuse is actually a liberating concept. If we can liberate the sexuality of children, we obliterate the innocence of children, then we can have a non-repressive societal order finally, finally. And it begins by, according to Marcusa, it begins by freeing sexuality between what he termed as mature individuals, which I would argue for them will be people who have been programmed or groomed to think in terms of a critical theory, because that's how they always mean terms like that. It's people who think like we do are mature. Everybody else is willfully ignorant, is in, is in white innocence, 
White innocence tells you. What is white innocence? Hasn't had an awakened racial consciousness. So what is innocence? Not having an awakened critical consciousness. And it's a form of privilege to not have one because the people who are oppressed are forced to have one by the power dynamics. That's the logic of this thing. And so what are they doing in the schools? They're trying to awaken that in children, whatever psychological, physical, and sexual abuse comes as a result so that they can generate their red guard. This must, must, not just on traditional or good American or normal human or uh, Christian or whatever ethics. This has to be pushed out of our schools with extraordinary, extraordinary prejudice. This has no place anywhere near children. It is beyond child abuse. It is my opinion that people that are doing this knowingly belong in prison, maybe for the rest of their lives. I don't hedge anything on it. They belong in prison, maybe for the rest of their lives. People who are being pressed into the service of doing this, teachers, for example, who aren't totally on board, but they know it's a condition of their job. Those people are being vigorously exploited. They are morally culpable for not standing up. I'm not so far as saying they also belong in prison for the rest of their lives if they were forced. But the people who are doing this knowingly, the people who are pushing these books into school libraries, for example, these graphic novels, the people who are the administrators who are bringing in trans story hour, trans strippers, the people who are pushing the gender ideology through SEL and knowing what gender ideology is, those people belong in prison. Full stop. So I hope this gives you some greater sense of the emergency that's happening in our schools. A few months ago when I said I'm going to turn away from critical race theory into queer theory because it's a horrific abuse. This is what I was looking at. This is what I was thinking of. This is what I was wanting to be able to say. And finally, I just got to the point where I have to say it because I have these other projects just building up and building up and building up and building up. And meanwhile, this is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I'm still drowning in Herbert Marcuse's other stuff. I have to keep doing it. I have to finish that before I could try to do something else. I have to tackle critical pedagogy in the more general theoretical abstract before any of this really fits in. But I felt like as I'm starting in this kind of liminal phase, transitioning from so much focus on critical race theory and the critical theory before it into critical pedagogy or critical education theory and the theory before it. Um, I felt like that I needed to just really stick this flag in the ground. You need to know what's going on in schools. You need to know how important it is to resist it. And you need to know it's not some accident. It's not the, it's not the result of, of just, um, the infiltration of abusers into our school system. It's not the, just the result of, of negligence. It is actually part of the broader over 100 year cultural Marxist program that has evolved through time to become what it is today under brand names like comprehensive sex education brought in through social emotional learning. So, um, you must resist this. You must fight this. You must go. What can you do? You must go and find out if these books are in your schools. You must find out if this stuff is being taught in the curriculum. You must expose it. Show up and read the book at, at a school board meeting. Read the book on a video. Show what's going on. Expose this. This is in my school. This is my kid's school. This is what it is. What you're going to find is that social media platforms ban the images as pornography, as inappropriate, what you're going to find is that the school boards try to cover it up and hide it. We just saw the hugest amount of cover-up hiding scandals going on in Loudoun County, Virginia. Literally, we had a uh, boy claiming to be non-binary rape, uh, rape a ninth grader girl, I think ninth grade, in a bathroom 
I think more than once in the school knowing about this and covering it up. And if you think this is just a one-off that happened in Loudoun County, you're out of your mind. This is happening everywhere. And this stuff, at the, the, the ideology doesn't work. None of it works. And so the schools are covering it up. So you must go look. You must go look, whether it's a Freedom of Information Act request, you know, public records request, whether it's going to the library and investigating, whether it's asking the questions, you know, whether it's getting your kid to go to the library and find out, you know, you must expose this. They don't want this exposed. This should be every every outlet that's trying to do anything to stop this monster should be talking about this almost nonstop. Do your part to bring it to light to see that this problem exists and how widespread it is. And hopefully this podcast, if you've listened, um, gives you the context to understand that this isn't this isn't just some weird sex stuff that got out of control. This is a program that has been in operation for 100 years and has finally been able to get all the way into the American and much of the Western uh, North American and, and Western school system curricula. Uh, if it's weird gender ideology, if it's weird queer ideology, if it's trans ideology, um, it's probably doing this. Critical race theory, like I said, is also doing this. If it post-colonial theory to de-innocentize, to, to, to innocentize, is that a word? To make children not innocent anymore, to disrupt the idea of childhood innocence, whether it's racial, um, cultural, or most importantly, sexual and gender-based, you must find it and resist it and expose it as part of the program that it is. Uh, and so go out and feel confident that that's, you are seeing what you're seeing. It's not just gross, it's gross and evil at the same time, and not just regular evil, but purposed evil in the sense that it's being used to destabilize society in the most vulnerable population that we have. Children, your children, our children, 